It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, you're listening to Future of Media Explained, where today we're talking about solutions journalism at The Times. With me, Press Gazette UK editor Charlotte Tobit and editor-in-chief Dominic Ponsford. Hi, Dom. Hi, Charlotte. Well, I'm very excited to talk about solutions journalism today because it's often mentioned as the antidote to news avoidance. Yeah, I feel it's been spoken about a lot as a thing which hasn't perhaps gone as far as we thought it might. News avoidance is definitely a big deal, isn't it? Over the last year, I think that's emerged as one of the big themes that people are worried about in the news industry. I think it's the idea that maybe up to a third of people are just switched off from the news and it's growing bigger because they just find it negative and they find it stressful and they're basically just not interested anymore and it's um quite timely because we got the um reuters institute for study of journalism annual report out today and news or yesterday sorry or this week anyway and news avoidance is again one of the big themes for them isn't it yeah what i found fascinating is i was at a conference recently a few hundred news leaders, you know, senior editors, etc. And news avoidance obviously came up, as you'd expect at the moment. But someone on stage said, can you put your hand up if you personally clock out of the news a bit or, you know, anything that could come under that news avoidance category, you put off the news. Quite a few people put their hands up and they said, you know, if that's the case in this room full of people who supposedly love the news and want to work in the news, then that's quite damning for the wider society so it's definitely an important topic right now we've got to listen haven't we because if people switch off then there's there's nothing else we can do it doesn't matter whether you've got a paywall or advertising or whatever you're doing if they're just switched off then we're doomed aren't we so what are they doing at the times in this area they're doing things differently and just a bit of a caveat here they wouldn't call it solutions journalism i think that's just something i've, I've put on it but they, they haven't strongly objected to you saying it. No, no. They, they know that you're saying this, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, they're kind of, you know, they're, happy, they're, they're content. But, um, <laughs> yeah, basically, uh, Rachel Sylvester, who's a um, columnist and um, political writer at The Times, the last couple of years, she's been working on um, something called the Education Commission and the Health Commission. And she's basically trying to solve two of the biggest kind of issues in UK public life is how, how you sort out the education system and how you uh, sort out the um, NHS. And it's very, very different from 
anything which journalists normally do. So she spends about more than a year, more than a couple of years working on these topics. She interviews hundreds and hundreds of people. She gets lots of people around a table at summits. Uh, and she basically ends up coming up with a report, which is almost like a manifesto, uh, saying, okay, these are the problems in education. Actually, this is how we can fix them. So whereas normally, as as you know, like a lot of the time as journalists, we're just sort of saying that's rubbish, that's a mistake, oh, that's a scandal, that's wrong, and it's like day to day. And she sort of stepped back from that and said, actually, I'm going to sit around a table with the politicians and try and help them come up with a solution, but, you know, using my journalistic powers. They just had the latest education summit, is that right? Yeah, so she spoke to me on the day of the education summit. So they had a bunch of people up at News UK sort of talking about the issues. And I think there's going to be like a load of stories and things will come out of it. And then ultimately, we'll see. But I think there's a good chance that the Times is going to end up sort of effectively writing a good bit of the manifestos because they're basically saying it's not political what they're doing, but they've got a sort of menu of policy ideas which um, politicians are apparently very interested in and they're, and they're going to pick and choose from. And, um, you know, Rachel Sylvester's sort of, um, she makes the point that it's all based on evidence and she just says that we'd hope to make the argument so compellingly that they couldn't possibly sort of ignore these good ideas that they've come up with. Yeah, it must be really rewarding if you see people actually pick up these ideas that you've gathered and worked on for a long time. So it must uh, be pretty cool. Yeah. And what's interesting is, obviously, for, for us, we're kind of all about the business of journalism, the business of media. So I sort of tried to put it to uh, Rachel Sylvester that, you know, well, how do you make a buck out of this? You know, how do we how do we all make a bunch of money? And she sort of, uh, she bridled at that a little bit. <laughs> and she said, oh, well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be investing all my time in, in all this if it, if it was just about the brand. But that said, I think um, there's a lot of good things flow from it, from being at the centre of the debate uh, and for coming up with these sort of positive solutions. And she said the readers are really engaged with it, which is obviously, you know, a good thing. Yeah, especially for a subscriber-based title like The Times, you want the readers to care. Perfect. Well, let's hear from Rachel herself. Do you want to lead us in? Well, I started off by asking her how it all came about. Hello, Rachel Sylvester, columnist and interviewer at The Times and also chair of The Times Education and Health Commission. Have I got all your titles correct? That's right. Thanks for joining us. And you're joining us fresh from The Times' second education summit. Yeah, it was really fascinating day. So it was about 180 people in the news building to discuss The Times Education Commission's report, which came out last June. And we had a really amazing group of people speaking. So ranging from Rufus Norris, the artistic director of the National Theatre, business leaders like Kevin Ellis from PwC, scientists, Sarah Jane Blakemore, professor of neuroscience at Cambridge. And what was so fascinating was from all these different worlds, business, science, the arts, they were all kind of agreeing that there needs to be change in the education system and that it's too narrow and too much focused on exams, which was the conclusion of our report. So first of all, how did it all come about? How did the, how did the idea for these summits come about? Well, the Education Commission was actually proposed by Anthony Selden, the previous Times editor, John Witherow, who thought it was a really good idea. He asked me to chair it. Anthony Selden was the deputy chair. And we then had this amazing group of 
commissioners, really high-powered and prestigious, including business leaders, former politicians, scientists, cultural figures, to advise us. And then the Times set the commission up, and it ran for a year. And you've been on this education and health for two years full-time now, is it? Yeah, two and a half years. And then when Tony Gallagher became editor and he thought the Education Commission had worked really well and he wanted to apply the same principles to health, so he asked me to keep going. Two of the toughest subjects in public life um, we're trying to sort. So you've got the Times, you've got the Education Commission and the Health Commission, which cover two things that basically everyone in the UK is... a bit bothered about or highly bothered about. They're good subjects to get into, aren't they? Too easy subjects to yeah, take on. To tackle, yeah. <laughs> and I guess one of the reasons um, I was quite interested to talk to you is because it sort of feels to me like it's a good example of solutions journalism. And uh, there's a lot of issues around trust, uh, like journalism isn't really very well trusted, although broadsheet journalists have, have got a lot better trust than some other journalists. Broadly speaking, there's not a great deal out of public trust in journalism. And there's also quite a big issue, I think, with people who are a bit turned off by journalism uh, generally. And I think one of the things people say is they find it quite negative, they sort of find it quite depressing. And it's always presenting people with problems because I guess sort of bad news is news, isn't it? And good news isn't always news. Yeah. So I'm just really interested to find out a bit more about how these two commissions came about. So you've got two sort of big reports which you've produced and which are a bit unjournalistic, aren't they, in a sense, in, this, in the way that you're actually spending ages not just kind of throwing stones at the window where journalists do or sort of just, you know, pointing out where people have fallen over and things have gone wrong, but actually sort of trying to get involved with the people who are trying to solve these problems yeah. and sort of help come up with solutions, which is quite different, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it's I think it is a real innovation, actually. I don't think any newspaper has done it before. It was almost like a little mini think tank. And we hold evidence sessions with outside experts zooming in, roundtable meetings we did for the Education Commission around the country. We set up young people's panel for the Education Commission. We've got a patient panel for the Health Commission, international visits, domestic visits, Trying to work out, yes, what the problem is, because obviously if you're going to find solutions, you have to work out what the problem is, but also then come up with some answers. So rather than just complaining about the status quo, come up with some ideas for how to fix it. And I think there is a sort of frustration in politics at the moment that there doesn't seem to be much original thinking going on. And I think the other thing about a newspaper that's a benefit is we've done it in quite a non-ideological way. So... We've really tried to follow the evidence and not be bound by either one kind of prism or the other, not by left or right, and just try and look at actually what works in this country and around the world and what could we suggest, what could be done better. And I think there is something really optimistic about it, actually, because I think, you know, you do need to set out what's wrong. You know, you think about the NHS. I went round Addenbrooke's Hospital and... You know, it was terrifying that I was in the emergency department. They were absolutely full capacity. I could see patients on trolleys in the corridors, ambulances, you know, lining up. There were three racing towards the hospital and no beds free. Then so to take that kind of burning platform, if you like, but then say, what could we do differently? I think it's something that readers seem to respond to as well. You know, we're open, obviously, to suggestions from our readers and from anyone. 
all the content for the uh, Education and Health Commission is outside the paywall, so it's free to read around the world. Uh, and we want to spread ideas and, and get the debate going. And so with the, with the Education Commission, that's more advanced, isn't it? So you've come up with an actual little book or bookazine or pamphlet. Yeah, it's a 100-page report, yeah. a 12-point plan, actual practical ideas. So including, for example, changing the exam system. So instead of having A-levels and GCSEs, you'd have a British baccalaureate with a kind of wider range of subjects at 18 and a slimmed down set of exams at 16. We had ideas like an electives premium for schools so that they'd get a bit of extra money for sport, drama, music, a focus on childcare and early years education to really kind of get the foundations right, an army of student tutors to help pupils to catch up after the pandemic, uh, and also so that the students could earn points for their degree by giving something back to society. And I think lots of the ideas have been picked up by one party or another. In fact, both Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak have welcomed our report and variously backed some of the proposals. Just this week, Gillian Keegan, the Education Secretary, and Bridget Pulitzer, her shadow, both said that they thought there needed to be changes to Ofsted, the inspectorate, which was another of our recommendations. So there were sort of practical ideas and we were hoping, we are hoping that there are ideas that are sort of common sense and then the evidence is so compelling and we make the argument in a kind of such a clear way that anyone can pick them up. So it doesn't have to be, obviously we don't have the power to implement these proposals, but they're there for any party to pick up who wants them. What examples are there of this leading to changes in the real world? And are you confident that all this work's going to lead to something happening? I hope so. I think we've framed an argument that um, all the political parties kind of get and see the point of. So the sort of multifaceted case, economic and social and personal and cultural. And there are lots of examples already where people have picked up the ideas. So just in the last month, there's been a the results of a pilot published of our idea for army of student tutors to teach pupils in their local schools. Rishi Sunak, during the first Tory leadership contest, talked about introducing a British baccalaureate, which was one of our ideas. And he's already gone for a change of maths to 18, which again was part of the report. Keir Starmer's talked about reforming the curriculum along the lines we've suggested. And I think he's also interested in assessment reform. And Labour's also pledged to change Ofsted and introduce a school report card rather than the kind of narrow definition of accountability, which again was one of our ideas. So I'm hoping that we've made a pragmatic and practical case for, for change that any party can pick up. I suppose it'd be interesting to see in the next um, election as well, whether more things make it into the manifestos. Well, we're giving, them, we're giving them a long list of ideas they can pick from. And I think almost any of the ideas could be taken up by any political party because they don't come with any ideological baggage. They're just driven by common sense and pragmatism. And by talking to people and following the evidence. So for the Education Commission, we spoke to more than a thousand people from all over the world and also from all different parts of society. So often when you're writing about education, People just talk to teachers or politicians or policymakers. But we spoke to artists. We spoke to Anthony Gormley. We spoke to Steve McQueen, the film director. We spoke to Mary Beard, the classicist. 
We spoke to business leaders, James Dyson, Richard Branson, and they all had a similar message. Scientists as well, to Paul Nurse, and they all had this similar criticism of the current education system, that it was too narrow. And they all said, we need more breadth. We need a greater range of skills. We need a greater connection between school and work, and we need more creativity. And that's something really positive. So rather than just focusing on the doom and gloom of the pandemic, we want to make it a moment that's a sort of pivot for the system so it can change into something that prepares children for the future. And I think in a way that's also a lesson for journalism that obviously throughout the course of the Education Commission and the Health Commission is generated masses of stories. You know, recently on the Health Commission, I did a a big uh, magazine piece on sexism in surgery and sexual harassment and abuse, really shocking, that ended up generating front page news stories, uh, Amanda Pritchard, the head of the NHS, promising to clamp down. So, so there is a story generating process, but then out of that, we'll come up with an idea for how to make that better and how to fix it. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you that. I mean, what in terms of the, I guess, the benefits this brings to the Times as a brand and as an institution as, and as something that's able to kind of produce quality journalism? Because How does it kind of benefit your output, I guess? And are there any other benefits to the Times that this sort of work brings? Well, I think the Times historically has always been about influence and ideas as well as news stories. Just going back throughout its history, that's been the case. But I think all journalism has traditionally been much more about identifying problems and then waiting for someone else to find the answers, which is what's in our campaigning on things like sewage and clean water and clean air that's much more about identifying a problem and then waiting for other people to come up with the solutions what's unusual and new about the education commission and the health commission is it is part of the remit to actually come up with a blueprint for reform a times solutions package if you like rather than just identifying the problem and i think that's something almost completely new in journalism and using the the kind of tools of journalism. So reporting, going out and talking to people, digging around, investigating, finding out what's actually going on under the bonnet, talking to as many people as possible from all directions and angles, and then synthesising that, that information, which is what we as journalists do, and then bringing it all together. We've got also a For both commissions, we've had an amazing panel of expert commissioners who are sort of advising and making sure that we consult as widely as possible and make sure these are ideas that are going to not fall just on deaf ears and be seen as a kind of newspaper shouting in the wind. The idea is to influence opinion. And I think for readers, readers like the fact that the paper they read and they themselves are contributing to the public debate. So we're very open to readers. We've got a special email address for readers to send uh, ideas for the commission. And we want everyone to be involved and to have their input and to have a say. And I think readers like that. And I think readers want to be associated with something positive. And they like the fact that, that we're not just complaining and, you know, as you said, put it, throwing bricks in glass houses, that actually we've got some ideas and practical solutions that hopefully will then be picked up. And I know this isn't 
you know, probably your area, but just interested to know, is there sort of any kind of you know, direct commercial benefits? Do you get sort of people in the corporate sector who want to sponsor this and, and help support it? Or how, do, how does that side of things work? It's not really my side of things, but I know, for example, for the Education Summit, both this year and last year, PwC uh, were the sponsors of that. And they also contributed to both the Education Commission and the Health Commission by doing surveys of business, which actually were incredibly useful for both. So for the Education Commission, it showed huge skill shortages and a real anxiety among business about the current education system. And also a sort of frustration with the assessment system. In fact, that's one of the reasons we came up with our recommendation on the baccalaureate, because so many companies were now telling us that through the PwC survey, that they just didn't take any notice any longer of GCSEs and A-levels because they didn't think they were a credible way of gauging children's achievements. And then for the Health Commission, the interesting thing about the business survey was about long-term sickness and people who aren't working. And in fact, what was fascinating from that is that it showed that a very high number of those people are actually suffering from mental ill health rather than physical ill health. So that association has been really interesting. I don't deal with the commercial sites. I can't tell you about money or whatever, but certainly the reaction that we've had when I've been speaking to people as the chair of the commissions in the business world, they're really fascinated by it as a concept. So in uh, the Education Commission, for example, we heard from James Dyson and Richard Branson. They, you know, they wanted to contribute, not financially, but in terms of ideas, because they care about these issues you know there's a huge commercial interest in fixing the education system and in fixing the health system so it's not that it benefits the times but i think it makes companies feel that that we're doing something serious which we are and i guess just to put a commercial slant on it 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 enhances the brand i guess doesn't it It enhances the brand of the times doesn't it which is can't be a bad thing in terms of readership or, or anything else that's going on i guess I suppose so. I've, I haven't really thought of it like that, but that would be a, a secondary, whatever the word is, consequence rather than the primary yeah. consequence. Yeah. I think if we were doing it for that reason, it would seem fake. Yeah. And we also <laughs> wouldn't put all this effort into it. Yeah. So, you know, I'm busting a gut working full time <laughs> on this for a year. Uh, I'm not doing that for any kind of brand. Sorry if that's not a good commercial thing to say. <laughs> I'm doing that because I think it's really important, really fascinating. And actually, we could make a real difference to the country. I'm always impressed when politicians say, you know, you can either watch from the sidelines, I'm paraphrasing the quote very, very badly, or get into the arena and actually make a difference. And I think there is something with journalism, it's very easy for us to throw stones from the sidelines and highlight all the problems. But we're trying to sort of get into the arena the best way we can as journalists, use our talents and skills and our sort of convening power, if you like, to bring people together We can speak to some of these great business people and then work out what some solutions are for the country. It's not really for us. We're not signing up to any of the political parties. We're doing it from outside the political party tribes, but we're trying to come up with with ideas. And I think probably with a a sort of bigger platform than a think tank would have and more ability to to speak to people. Um, You know, so for the Health Commission, a couple of weeks ago, I went to Israel, which was just complete revelation in terms of the contrast with the NHS. I went to the emergency department of one of the hospitals in Tel Aviv and, you know, there's robots trundling around the A&E department. It's all digitalized. You sign in digitally, you're triaged digitally. 
the whole flow through the hospital is done using AI. They have it in the in the fracture unit. There's a 3D printer to make waterproof casts for people with a broken arm. It just makes you realize that there are tools that we're not using here that we could be using to make the system work better. Well, I guess a lot of the time people are sort of um, got their face so pressed to the windscreen in terms of trying to solve the next immediate crisis. They're probably ne- not necessarily leaning back so much. I'm just wondering, um, like for you, previously political reporter and and columnist, has this sort of changed the way you think about journalism? Because obviously a lot of journalism, uh, you know, and great journalism as well, is party gay, what have you. It's it's about pointing out mistakes in the here and now, in the day-to-day, uh, and not really taking this really long view of things. Has it sort of changed the way you think about the, the trait of it? Yeah, our job's to tweak the tail, isn't it, and cause trouble and mischief and... That's what a story is, really. But maybe it's made me think a little bit more responsibly that even if you tweak the tail, then you have to work out what you're going to do when the beast starts turning around and roaring and what actually what are some answers to the problems you've unearthed. I think it's been quite interesting for me because I've had to try and persuade people in politics and in Westminster and in Whitehall what we want. I've almost turned, not exactly lobbying, but I've I've had to try and make the argument to politicians of of all parties. So rather than just interviewing them, I'm almost trying to persuade them of a case. It's like being on the other side of the fence. Normally they're trying to persuade us of their case. It's odd. But I think what's interesting is it's a mixture of news and comment, if you like. So I was a news reporter, then I was a political reporter, then I was a columnist and I'm an interviewer as well. And it sort of synthesizes all of those different skills because you're having to work out what the problem is, report on it, but then also then analyze what the solutions could be and sort of bring it all together. Well, thanks for all that, Rachel. So we can read all about the Education Health Commission for free on the relevant bits of the Times website. Yeah. There's a special page on the Times website, one for the Education Commission and one for the Health Commission. They are outside the paywall. So as long as things are on that page, they should be free to read. And what's coming up What's coming up next with these projects? And are there any more in the offing? Well, on Saturday, I've got a piece. Uh, I went out for a, a 12-hour shift with the London Ambulance Service with these two female paramedics, a uh, paramedic and a technician on an ambulance going around Hackney, Islington. Absolutely fascinating day. So that's a piece of reporting, really, in the magazine. Uh, and then looking up some of the challenges they're facing and what we might be able to recommend to help the ambulance service, but also make sure that people don't end up calling an ambulance or going into hospital, because that's one of the problems. Our final report for the Health Commission will be out next January. So we've got a bit of time until then. But all the way through, we've got evidence sessions every two weeks for the Health Commission coming up. Uh, At the moment, we're looking at social care. So the next evidence session next week, we're going to be hearing from Joan Bakewell, broadcaster, William Haig, and former Tory leader David Blunkett, the former Labour Cabinet Minister. Then we're going to be looking at public health and obesity. We're going to be looking at technology. We're going to be looking at mental health. So we're kind of working our way through the health agenda. And I'm planning a trip to Japan as well in July. So that's going to be really fascinating. They've got a really fast aging population. So they've got some really interesting solutions to social care that I think are worth looking at and also to public health. 
I'm told that there's some kind of legal requirement for companies to measure their employees' wastes once a year. So I'm not sure whether we'll be recommending that, but I'm not sure how well that would go down at the Times. <laughs> <laughs> All the press goes I, I read something about that. Yeah, fascinating. Well, look, thanks for all that. And and any, uh, do you know which topic you're going to go to next? If there's another one, <laughs> I think um, health and education are quite a lot. I'm not sure. I think there's two of the thorniest <laughs> issues. The thing about both of those, which is what makes it interesting, I think, to read about and write about, as well as to come up with recommendations on, it, is they're very human. So there are human stories for both of those areas, both in terms of the users of those services and also the staff within those services that make them really brilliant as subjects for the journalism as well as the recommendations. Yeah, so that's what makes it, I think, really fascinating. Thanks so much, Dom, and, and thanks, Rachel, for a brilliant interview. So, Dom, what do you think? Are you convinced should more people be doing this type of solutions journalism? Well, I am, yeah. I think it's um, – I mean, I was really impressed that they, they seem to be doing it because it's a good thing to do, you know, rather than any sort of particular capitalist plot. But, that you know, that said, I think good things will come from it, and um, I think that any publication that can – place itself at the centre of its community and make itself really essential and important to that community, good things come from that in terms of uh, people who want to walk, work with you as commercial partners and people who want to be involved, uh, you know, by re reading about what you've got to say because you're so essential. So I am optimistic about it. But, you know, that said, I think the whole kind of solutions journalism is a bit like sort of positive journalism, isn't it? which people talk about a lot, saying, oh, if only the news was more positive. I think, do you remember in uh, 2016, um, Reach launched a, a new daily newspaper that was going to be mm. positive news called The New Day. And how long did that last for? Not long. Nine weeks. It was like the shortest daily newspaper in history. So, you know, fingers crossed. I think there's definitely going to be a growing um, sort of demand for this sort of thing. For me, I think the most important thing is we can't keep doing the same thing. Look at some of the figures for newspaper readership, and then if you look at also some of the digital metrics are going down a little bit. You can't just do the same thing. You know, there's definitely a constituency of people who are a bit turned off by the news. I guess that's why GB News has done quite well, hasn't it? Because it's been able to tap into them. reaching those people. Perhaps like at the Times, it's, it works best as part of a wider package rather than one product that's all positive or solutions or whatever you want to call it. It's part of a a wider thing that engages readers so that's maybe why it's working here yeah exactly as part of the package i think it was just what you did it might become a little bit a little bit too worthy to really you know re to really sort of read about every day but as part of what's going on a great thing to have and i think the point rachel made is there's lots of really good spin-offs come from it anyway from all the investigation that she does as part of these commissions she's getting into all these areas and actually telling lots of, you know, really interesting sort of human stories. And, and at the heart of it, for her, it's all about getting people together and talking to people. So I guess that's when good things happen in journalism as well, when you just have the access and you meet people and talk to them. You know, only good things can come from that. That alone is a great lesson for people to remember. You've been listening to Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette UK editor Charlotte Tobit, 
Press Gazette Editor-in-Chief Dominic Ponsford and produced by Misha Frankel Duval. For more on this topic and anything to do with the future of media, check out pressgazette.co.uk. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and recommend to a friend or a colleague. See you next week.